All right, I'll give a I'll give an intro spiel and try not try not to embarrass you too much. <laughs> you know, you are one of the the big dogs in uh, in Deleuze studies. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, we can talk about that. I mean, I know people say that, but if I'm a big dog, it's because when I started writing, I was interested in Deleuze, and uh, I kept looking for someone who could explain Deleuze to me, and there was just so little out there, and so I just had to. Yeah, you know, I feel like I have a simple mind. I had to write simply and just lay it out for myself, and you know that's what the book was because I just there wasn't anything out there when I was starting. So, but I guess then you become a big dog. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So early adopter, or you got that nose for talent. Um, let me just quickly run this intro, and then we will get started. Hello, listener. You are on an overdose episode of the Plastic Pills podcast, where we are back on Deleuze today. And with me is the voice of one who I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar, at least in his uh, textual format, Daniel W. Smith. So most Deleuze anthologies that you open up will have his name somewhere in the table of contents. Um, and he edited The Cambridge Companion to Deleuze, among others. Currently, he is the founder and co-director of the Deleuze Seminars Project. And you guys got to check this out. It's translating into English like 20 years of seminars that Deleuze gave at uh, Paris 8 through the 70s and 80s. And probably what's most important to all you out there is that these seminars were in large part the the breeding ground of both Anti-Oedipus and Thousand Plateaus. So D&G did not just pull these stacks of obscure references from their own minds, but they're more part of a big collaborative effort. Anyway, we'll get to that. Um, with the man of the hour, Daniel W. Smith, welcome to the Pill Pod. Thanks, Pills. It's great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. And very excited to have you. Um, we're gonna, definitely going to get to the Deleuze Seminars Project, which will be the title of the episode. Um, but I wanted to ask you first, Dan, because according to your CV, you've been you've been publishing on Deleuze since I was uh, playing cops and robbers in elementary school, and I, and I am older than most of my audience, uh, who seem to have this uh, thirst for the Deleuze and Guattari content. Um, but I thought I should ask first. Because you've also published on on Foucault and a few other French thinkers, but how did you come across this persona, and what about Deleuze studies or Deleuze himself made this uh, your philosophical home? Yeah, that's a scary question because now I'm a like Deleuze, recognized Deleuze scholar, which is nothing I really uh, had in mind uh, when I started writing on Deleuze because I was just interested in Deleuze and was trying to figure him out back when I was in grad school. So I got into Deleuze in grad school. I actually started uh, my graduate career doing religious studies and not uh, philosophy. And I was just reading Nietzsche on my own at that point, partly because of, of his critiques of religion, but also everything he was doing philosophically. And right about then, either... Deleuze's translation, uh, the English translation of Deleuze's Nietzschean philosophy came out, or at least I became aware of it. And I read that book and I was blown away just by the reading of Nietzsche that he gave, which was systematic and insightful and pulled Nietzsche together for me in a way I didn't find in, in anyone else. So I remember going to the library at the university I was at, and luckily, so it was University of Chicago, and they had a 
a good library and, and they had a ton of Deleuze books there, none of you know whose spines had been cracked at all. But I remember seeing difference in repetition there and logic of sense and thinking, I need to I need to read more of this guy. And even though we were required to uh, you know pass French exams, I decided I really have to learn French now in order to to read Deleuze. So that's how I got into him. People often ask me what's the best way to get into Deleuze, and I don't have a good answer to that. But my answer was uh, what I, what I was reading at the time is what got me into Deleuze. So if you're reading Nietzsche, try the Nietzsche book. If you're reading Spinoza, try Spinoza, um, his Spinoza stuff. Um, and then uh, I just had to decide on what I wanted to write a dissertation on. And I thought, well, I'll write it on Deleuze because at this point I'm interested in reading Deleuze and there was not much secondary material on him. So I falsely presumed that that would make it a fairly easy dissertation to write because I wouldn't have to wade through a lot of secondary literature. Um, and it turned out not to be quite so <laughs> straightforward because as you know, Deleuze is very immersed in the history of philosophy. So I had to spend a lot of time, you know, boning up on Kant and Bergson and Spinoza and Nietzsche and everything else uh, Deleuze writes on before I could start to write on him with any sort of, uh, um, you know, acumen. So Deleuze wound up being, as I was writing my dissertation, wound up being my, as Deleuze himself says, it was my apprenticeship to philosophy through, through Deleuze. So early adopter, and you said one of the books you found in that library was uh, Logic of Sense. Was that your your buddy Charles's translation? No, at that point, uh, the only books that had been translated by Deleuze were Anti-Oedipus, um, Proust and Signs, and the Masochism book, which I believe had early on been published by Grove Press, which was a kind of, under, not an underground press, but they had done... Uh, you know, James Joyce and people like that who were deemed to be a little uh, risque. And so I think there's a reason why the masochism book got translated uh, early on. Anti-Oedipus, which is hugely popular in France, I think that's why it got translated. And then um, the Proust book was translated by Richard Howard, who is a poet. So it's a great translation, but I think that uh, got taken up in literary studies. So Deleuze as a philosopher, I think, was unknown for a long time. Some of his books were, these early books were translated because they were, I think, specific audiences that were interested in them. But I think Deleuze as a whole was still hidden, you know, for quite a while until this, at least in the English speaking world, until the translation started coming with more force. All right. If I could ask a follow-up question. So you, you broached this thinking it'd be easy. It turned out to be very difficult. And I think probably for a lot of people that are listening to this, they've tried to crack a book anti-Oedipus, Thousand Plateaus, been overwhelmed and got discouraged. So for those kind of people, can you can you tell them what makes it worth the effort and why is it worth it to get to the end of that process? Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think it's worth it because um, I do think for me, if I write on Deleuze and got interested in, in Deleuze, it's because I do think he's still for me, one of the great uh, philosophers of the 20th century. I think he's one of those indispensable philosophers and that we still have a lot of work to do on him. And if he's worth working through, and this is what I found myself, this is sort of what I made my career on, I didn't understand Deleuze. I was like everyone else. I read these books and I had a kind of, um, how to put it, Deleuze makes a distinction at one point between effective readings of philosophers and conceptual readings. So like Spinoza is his example. It's written in a geometric style. It's not very accessible, not something you sit down and you know read while you're trying to go to sleep, or maybe you can if you want to go to sleep quickly. But um, he says, uh, 
Spinoza often affects people before they really know what Spinoza is actually saying. There's kind of an effect he has on people that wants you, uh, kind of provokes you to dig deeper. And I found that uh, with Deleuze, I didn't know what he was saying, but it had an affect on me that made it feel like I'm not sure what's going on here, but it seems to me worth it to go deeper. And uh, if you get that feeling with Deleuze, <laughs> and it's not a bad feeling, then I think uh, I would say it is worth it to go deeper, but it takes it takes a little work. And I don't think there's any, um, you know, the downside is I think there's no easy path getting into Deleuze. I think you just got to, um, you got to work at it. Um, and the rewards come, they did for me. And there's still things I find very obscure in Deleuze. And when I write papers, I'm asked to give talks, that's where I have to sit down and really do the grunt work and try to put together for myself what I think Deleuze is saying. And that's what becomes really, um, really fruitful. So I do think he's worth it, but I, I don't think there are any easy shortcuts to trying to work through him. It, there is a weird writing style. He's very academic. He tried to dump the academic style, as he said, in Anti-Oedipus. But I think that made it uh, even harder to read, to be honest. Well, I think it's encouraging to know that uh, even after decades with this stuff, it's still obscure. I think that'll be a very comforting thing to hear. It is for me. Um, so getting to your book on Deleuze, which I don't know if you have uh, reviewed lately, but you kind of divided it into three sections. And this this talk is not necessarily about your book, but I thought this would be a useful uh, rubric. You talk about Deleuze and the history of philosophy, his commentaries and monographs, um, then Deleuze and his own system of philosophy, and then third is Deleuze with concepts. So his the concepts that he developed um, often with Guattari. And I was wondering, you you mentioned Guattari a lot, but he's not the the subject of most of your writings. You usually focus on the Deleuze half of those partnerships. So, do you have a take on those co-authored works as opposed to the monographs? Like, of course, they they differ in form as you mentioned, and intent, obviously. Uh, but were you drawn to one or the other specifically because you prefer the more disciplinary, philosophical approach in the monographs, or are they equivalent to you? That's a good question, and I'm going to say something that'll probably get me in trouble with some people who read Deleuze. Oh, good. We, we, we like that. That's, drama's good content. Yeah, good. Uh, you know, something scandalous. So not that scandalous, but I've read, you know, almost everything that Guattari wrote um, because I'm interested in Deleuze. But my confession is that I just have never been able to get into Guattari himself the same way I got uh, and still get into Deleuze. That's not a judgment on Guattari. I think it says more about me. I would say the same thing about Bergson, who Deleuze loves. And I've read almost everything Bergson has written, and it's not that I don't appreciate and like Bergson, but I just I, I just feel like I don't get into him the same way. Like I really got into Nietzsche and Kant and Spinoza, um, and I understand a lot of Bergson, but I I feel like I don't know that effective dimension is is missing for me with Bergson. And it's the same thing with uh, Guattari. So even though I know some people think Deleuze gets um, or uh, sort of first billing over Guattari sometimes, and certainly in my work. Um, I'll just have to confess, it's because I find Deleuze compelling, um, and it's not that I don't find Guattari compelling, I know Deleuze got a lot from um, from Guattari, but personally, I, I just find it harder to get into him, like I find it hard to get into um, into Bergson. That being said, your general question of co-authorship, 
I think is I've always found a really interesting one because Deleuze himself, I think, needed, he says at one point in an interview, he needed intercessors or he needed mediators in order to do his work. And early on, uh, they were just figures in the history of philosophy. It's almost like he couldn't think, and he says this, he couldn't think on his own. He needed to write books on Nietzsche and then a book on Spinoza and then books on Bergson and, and Hume, and they were apprenticeships. But he find it hard, found it hard to speak in his own name, he says. And the first book he says he wrote in his own name was Difference in Repetition. But even there, when you read it, he's just like on every page referring to all the philosophers he's written on and many others besides. It's like he can't he can't help himself. He needs to think through other people. But I think that kind of came to a head in May 68. Um, you know, and even Alain Badiou said he was a kind of elitist thinker. I don't think that's true, but I sort of see what he's saying, that he was very tied to the history of philosophy and academic philosophy. And my own personal sense is that Guattari uh, got him out of all that. He still needed a mediator, you know, intercessors, but uh, Guattari was, an, you know, someone living in the present <laughs> and someone connected to the present. He was working with Lacan and uh, into psychoanalysis, but he was also a political activist and all those things. I think Deleuze needed Guattari to get him into those domains because, you know, he, he was probably on the spectrum as far as I can tell. You know, he just worked. That's what he did. He was just focused on his work all the time. And I, I think at some point he realized he needed someone like Guattari to get him out of, I don't want to say his shell, but to get him connected to things that he wasn't going to get connected to if he just kept working uh, in the history of, of philosophy. But it's a very curious question why Deleuze and Guattari needed each other at a certain point and kept their co-authorship uh, going for so long, you know, with breaks in between. Yeah, I think the, the interview you're referring to is published in Desert Islands. And the interviewer asked him something to the effect of uh, what's with Guattari taking second billing. And Deleuze said, I, I had hit a wall. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I had hit a wall before I even met him. And Guattari is the one who came and broke the wall for me. But while we're doing confessions, um, I have a very painfully prosaic mind. So Guattari solo works. <laughs> they don't do it for me either. Oh, good. Well, at least there are two of us then. I have to say, I have lots of friends, you know, who love Guattari. So I'm always embarrassed to, to say, like, as I say, it's not a judgment. It's just a, a confession about, uh, I guess, affectivity. Now, for all my for all my talking about creativity, I'm I'm not creative enough to think through <laughs> through uh, chaosmosis or whatever it is. Um. So yeah, uh, this is the last of our of our general introduction get to know you questions but there's a lot going on in the world at the moment um i'm not going to mention any specifics or tell you to answer what deleuze what a deleuzean has to say about this or that but uh why do you think in in a general sense either politically generally speaking or institutionally with the the university and and thinking what is uh what is a Deleuzean perspective on uh, the world these days, and why might it be useful or valuable? Well, let me just start with the institutional side, because I do, uh, um, you know, Deleuze says at some point uh, in France, uh, when, so this is like more about uh, politics of just doing philosophy as graduate students and as me, a philosophy teacher. 
but there was a kind of Oedipal complex there because uh, so much of the training in French philosophy was in the history of philosophy. That's why Deleuze is tied to the history of philosophy. That's why Derrida was tied to the history of philosophy, doing close readings of the text because they were required to do that. And I get the sense in people like Deleuze and, and, and Derrida, it was like, fine, you want a history, a reading in the history of philosophy? I'll give you readings in the history of philosophy because it was their institutional context. So they were forced to do these close, imminent readings of texts. So they had to find a way to do that in a way that they could be creative in a way and produce their own philosophy in the context of fulfilling these requirements. And I do think that's a... Um, an institutional situation everyone finds themselves in uh, doing philosophy and not just philosophy. If you're doing law and medicine, you're deeply in an institution that has its own norms that you have to have to deal with. So I think there's a general question there of how, given the institution of philosophy, and now we have continental versus analytic philosophy or just requirements for grad courses or uh, you know the canon that you have to deal with. I think the big question is, how do you find a space where you can think you know, and be creative, as you say, and think think the new, as Deleuze says, philosophy is the creation of concepts. It's far easier to say uh, than to do, <laughs> I think. And so that's one thing I get from Deleuze. And I think frequently about, um, as a, you know, I guess I'm a professional philosopher. It's sort of weird to say that, but I get paid for doing philosophy. So I guess that makes me a professional philosopher. Um, but it's easy to get caught up, you know, in all the administrative stuff and the institutional things that are going on around one and, and lose sight of, you know, what we should be and want to be doing as philosophers. So that's the inst institutional side with regard to philosophy. In terms of politics and the, the world at large, um, not quite sure what to say there. I do think, um, here, here again, this may be a more limited response, but I do think Deleuze and Guattarian capitalism and schizophrenia produced a really remarkable and remarkable new uh, uh, political philosophy. And I think the problem with capitalism and schizophrenia, as you pointed out early, earlier, they're almost impossible to read. Even for Deleuzeans, you know, it's, it's hard to know what's going on, especially in anti-Oedipus. So even people who work maybe in political philosophy and might be interested in seeing what Deleuze and Guattari have to offer, who have the best of intentions, are going to have a really hard time reading those books and, and, and you know, extracting what they, um, what they might be able to use. So I have to say one of my little pet projects that I'm hoping to do at some point is just to write a short book on what exactly that political um, philosophy is, which has to do with a kind of typology or types of social formations, primitives, states, capitalism, and then in a thousand plateaus, the nomadic war machine, because they are not um, stages in a kind of evolutionary progression. That's what they're fighting against. That chapter in Anti-Oedipus that's called primitives, savages, and civilized people is actually a riff from a book written in the 19th century by a guy named Lewis Morgan, which was called Ancient Society, From Primitives to Barbarians to Civilized People. It had a huge influence on Marx and Engels, and that's why Deleuze and Guattari are interested in it, but they never mention where it comes from, that title. Um, but it's kind of a 19th century notion of progress from primitives to civilization. And it's exactly what they're trying to fight against in anti-Oedipus, because from their point of view, uh, evolution is not successive and time is not successive. It's not linear. It's really coexistence. So they're, they're trying to do a political philosophy where you see that, uh, you know, territorial societies, overcoding societies, capitalism as a decoding thing, and then nomadic war machines coexist. And that's the approach we should take 
in uh, in political philosophy. So that's not really an answer of how it's applicable in you know any applied sense, but I do think there's a lot that still needs to be done um, on Deleuze and Guattari's political philosophy and making it accessible to people who I think would be receptive to it, but who can't really <laughs> be bothered to uh, try to work through capitalism and schizophrenia uh, on their own. Um, so that's just a, a plea to say, I think the political philosophy they've developed is important. You know, there are people like Badiou and Peter Hallward who just think he has no political philosophy, which is kind of weird because capitalism and schizophrenia is about a thousand pages and it's nothing but a political philosophy. So uh, I don't know why people say that, but I do understand those books are hard to hard to penetrate from the outside. They're not linear enough, perhaps, um, as compared to the earlier monographs. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Wasn't it Zizek who said that Guattari was the worst thing to ever happen to Deleuze? <laughs> yes, and there's a thesis there as well, because, of course, Zizek is a kind of Lacanian slash Hegelian. Yeah. And um, up until Logic of Sense, like the second half of Logic of Sense, is Deleuze essentially being a Lacanian mm -hmm. uh, and uh, trying to incorporate psychoanalysis into his analyses in Logic of Sense. And then he meets Guattari, and then Anti-Oedipus is completely... Uh, it's psychoanalytic analytic approach is completely dependent on Lacan on the one hand, so they're not really uh, criticizing him. They admit their indebtedness, but I think they're really trying to invert Lacan because uh, Lacan is focused on the symbolic and the real. There are really these gaps or ruptures in the symbolic. And Deleuze and Guattari say, no, we can describe the real in positive terms uh, because that's where schizophrenics dwell. You know, yeah. they, can't, they can't articulate things in the symbolic. They're, they resist. Uh, psychoanalysis because uh, they use words as weapons rather than as something that, that has any meaning. Uh, but that's precisely the domain of the real and they use you know schizophrenia from a clinical perspective but not just a clinical perspective as a way of thinking about the real. So in that sense I see them as trying to invert Lacan even though they're dependent on uh, Lacan. So yes, Guattari had a huge influence on Deleuze and I suspect early on it was precisely um, his work with Lacan, Guattari's work with Lacan, that was appealing uh, to Deleuze because he was at that moment where he he was coming coming to terms with psychoanalysis in his own way. Yeah, this is one of the the binding the binding chords between the two of them. One as a psychoanalyst, one as a philosopher, uh, is to contend with or offer an alternative to uh, a representational logic or a world of representation as opposed to the real and together it seems like a, it's a matter of political importance for them to to suggest that politics is not changing illusions it's changing reality yes exactly um, and before we leave the politics behind i have a question for you specifically because it's uh something that i've really i think i've only heard or read sorry heard read you talk about it but that is the uh ethics because you've written on imminent ethics in Deleuze, and I'm the I'm the sort of person who kind of recoils when I hear the word ethics because I go, well, what? I'm not I'm not reading philosophy to find a bunch of rules for life, and Deleuze himself is of course not one for imposing moral codes by any stretch. But you um, made the case, I guess this was several years ago, for an imminent imminent so non externally imposed ethics derived from the very the very ethically motivated philosopher 
Nietzsche. So was it. Uh, could, <laughs> Got it. Could, could you tell us what's at stake when you formulate ethical questions imminently instead of as like uh, codes or, or rules imposed from, from some external vantage? And how then should we live? Yeah. Easy question. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what imminent, that's a good way of saying what imminent ethics is. Although I think Deleuze develops in a way that, uh, that question in a way that few others have. So an imminent ethics is not a transcendent ethics. So transcendence would mean you have sort of moral rules and norms that you impose upon our behavior and you say, do this and don't do that. And you try to follow these transcendent norms. Deleuze doesn't like that because he's a, a critic of transcendence, but it really does raise this big issue in ethics. Well, then what exactly is ethics? And is it just a free for all and relativistic, which is sort of how a lot of people go, it's subjective or relative. And that's exactly not the path that Deleuze goes. He says the opposite of, of transcendence is imminence, but it has its own uh, cri criteria. Uh, so an imminent ethics will ask um, about modes of existence and what is is the nature of one's mode of existence and it provides criteria. So the two great figures in the history of an imminent ethics are Spinoza and Nietzsche. So Nietzsche wrote a genealogy of morals and in critiquing morals, he developed what Nietzsche thought was a kind of imminent ethics, which had to do with two types of mode of existence, a reactive type and an active type. So just to put in religious terms, this is one of the things that attracted me to Nietzsche early on. He says, we can't, he's like, he's like Kant, we can't answer metaphysical questions. Do we have a soul? Is there a life after death? Is there a God? Uh, but what we do have access to are the modes of existence of people who ask those questions or who need the concept of God or the soul or an afterlife. And we can say, what is it about the nature of this mode of existence that needs those concepts or wants those concepts? So what lies at the heart of the genealogy of morals in Nietzsche is the concept he develops of resentiment or resentment. Like the reason you would want to believe in another world is because your mode of existence in this life is characterized by a resentment, you know, against the world. So that's what an imminent mode of ethics is. It's like, what's the mode of existence that needs these concepts? Why, why do you want to pose these questions or seek for another life? And then Spinoza, I think uh, Nietzsche got to eventually because I think he, he gives even more concrete criteria of how to think about a mode of existence, primarily with the two concepts of affection and affect, uh, because Spinoza will say we're constantly affected, that's what an affection is, by things outside of us. I'm affected by you, you know, right now, talking with you. Uh, people are being affected now, listening to this podcast. But Deleuze says that every affection will produce at the same time an affect, either of joy or sadness. So if you're liking this podcast, you might feel a little joy, if you think Smith's an idiot and he's saying nothing of interest, then you you know the opposite of that is, is sadness, and that'll be a, a sort of move down in your you know your uh, your affects. So it, it's a very concrete way of looking at a mode of existence. At every moment of our existence, we're being affected by an in infinity of things, and everything that we of which we have an affection produces an affect. So there's kind of this constant up and down. It's like a melody between joy and sadness. And then the criteria are, how do we increase our joy? How do we avoid sadness? sadness? And, um, and all of that are imminent criteria of how to live your life uh, properly. And that's really at bottom, I think, what an imminent ethics is, is all about. And it's tied, of course, one more thing then, you know, it's tied to what we generally think of ethics and politics, because 
what affects you is also the political organization you live within. So when uh, Spinoza defends democracy, he says, because it's, it's the type of social organization that gives us the most positive affects. So that's why affectivity becomes a criteria for assessing what the best mode of social organization is or could be. So ethics, rather than being rules, is uh, more to do with expression, could you say, or desire? Yes, desire. That's Deleuze's contribution to this um, uh, tradition in, um, in Anti-Oedipus. Um, and he gets that, oddly, from Kant, because Kant, as you know, wrote three critiques, and the first one had to do with knowledge, which was the faculty of, of the understanding, essentially. The second uh, critique had to do with morality, and that's what uh, Kant called the faculty of desire. And then the third critique had to do with the faculty of pleasure and pain. But Kant defines desire in a weird way. And I remember in grad school when I read this, I just did not understand what Kant was getting at because he says desire is a faculty that given a representation in my mind, I can produce the object that corresponds to it. And I read that and it just seemed like magic. Like I think of a glass of water, I have a representation of it, and I can produce the glass of water in front of me. That's what it sounded like. Uh, which, of course, is not what Kant has in mind, because what he has in mind is, I think that I'm going to slap you in the face, and then I actually affect that and slap you in the face. So desire is this faculty that can bring about things in the world. It produces things in the world. And that's a real inversion of the usual notion of desire, where if I desire something, it's because there's something out there I want, and I don't have it. So that's the revolution Deleuze thought Kant introduced into philosophy. Desire is not something that indicates a lack, that I want something but I don't have it, and that's why I desire it. He says desire is this productive faculty where I can think of something and then cause it to happen in the world. So Deleuze takes that and puts it in the Spinozist uh, Nietzschean context and says, yes, desire is, uh, is productive. <laughs> it is what produces our social realities and our social uh, formations. So it's a way of rethinking Kant without uh, the moral law, because for Kant, the will is simply desire raised to a higher power where I'm subordinate to the moral law. So in an odd way, Deleuze uh, in uh, Anti-Oedipus is trying to, of all people, because he said Kant was an enemy of his, and this is where he's an enemy, he's trying to take Kant's theory of desire and make it purely imminent in a way that corresponds to uh, Spinoza and uh, and Nietzsche. So that's part of what the first, the first half of Anti-Oedipus is, is about, kind of rethinking Kant's notion of desire, along with psychoanalysis and Lacan, inverting Lacan, inverting, inverting Kant, and giving, giving us a kind of imminent notion of what desire is and should be. You're totally speaking my language right now, because I'm, the, the, the projects that I'm working on, internet-based projects are, we have to think of desire more as this connective willing, and even in some cases, an, un an unconscious willing or a willing that can be manipulated rather than, you know, I want something, so I'm going to go get it. Because if we think of I want something, then we go get it. Then we think of, you know, capital consumer capitalism. We think of it in the wrong way. We think of it only on the subject side rather than as this, you know, a productive desiring machine. Yeah, exactly, because that, that's their argument. They say it's really capitalism or any social formation. It's that that introduces lack into our desire. 
Yeah. But the re- let me say one more thing on this because I, I find it important. Like there was this big question when they were writing Anti Oedipus on the relation between Freud and, and Marx, because both of them said that uh, consciousness is determined by unconscious forces. On Freud, it was kind of libidinal forces, you know, what we think of as the unconscious. In Marx, it was class consciousness. You know, rich people will think differently from poor people. You think in terms of your class. But the big question was, how do you unite these two sort of unconscious economies, a libidinal economy that determines consciousness in Freud and a political economy in Marx? And Deleuze and Guattari's thesis um, is that those two economies are, in fact, one and the same thing. In other words, there's no sense in which, like, we project our desires outward to produce society and the society in turn uh, reflects back on us and we internalize that. Um, Desire is part of the infrastructure in in a Marxist sense, which is simply a way of saying, like, from day one, the day you were born, your desires, your instincts, like what you want to do is social and political through and through already. Um, and it's not something that, you know, gets sublimated, as Freud said, in order to enter society. Desire is part of politics from day one, and your desires are invested in the political system that you uh, are born into from, from day one. So I do think it's a really radical thesis. That's why I say I really think anti-Oedipus needs to be translated, uh, you know, conceptually into people to, in, for people to see what's really at stake uh, in what they're doing in that book. I wasn't planning to ask you this question, but I I need to ask somebody because I can't figure it out. Um, I think it's in it's in either negotiations or desert islands, but they give this uh, long critique of libidinal economy and all that, and it sounds like they're having an argument with Marx. And then at at a certain point in an interview, they just say, "We have always been Marxists." Period. And this was, I think, already in the 80s. And I don't get it. I can't figure it out. Why are they Marxists um, when they're introducing so many uh, various er- disparate elements disagreeing with the Marxists of their time, like uh, Althusser, uh, disagreeing with the critique of ideology? And then at the end of it, they say, but we're still Marxists. That's a great question. And I thought about that a lot because my take on that is this. On the one hand, they say we are and continue to be Marxists because you cannot do political philosophy now without thinking about capitalism. And essentially, Marx you know, wrote a three-volume huge book called Das Kapital, and he created that concept. So they're Marxists in the sense that they're working in the wake of Marx and working in the wake of capitalism and its existence, and you can't do political philosophy without doing that. And to do that, you're indebted to Marx. The flip side is Marx himself said that capital by its very nature and capitalism would change. And so Deleuze and Guattari say, so that doesn't mean we simply take Marx's analyses and repeat them because that's not what philosophy is. Philosophy is the creation of concepts and you create concepts uh, in, uh, in relation to changing circumstances, changing problems. And one of the things that is changing is, is capitalism. So they're Marxist in the sense they're interested in capitalism, but they also feel the need to create new concepts to describe the current state of capitalism. There are more than a few people from internet land that I hope are hearing this. (laughs) So it's true that for that reason, then they will simply let drop and in a few instances critique uh, a lot of the concepts that Marx used to define or analyze capitalism, like ideology or infrastructure versus superstructure 
or a contradiction. You know, the idea that that's a 19th century idea that history is you know, Hegelian idea. It's generated by contradictions in this case between the proletariat, you know, and the capitalists. And then that will resolve itself and produce some new stage in a dialectical uh, history. So they say, no, you have to get rid of contradiction as the motor of, uh, of history and introduce lines of flight and all the, the new concepts they introduce. Uh, so that's how I see it. They're Marxists because they think you, you can't do political philosophy without thinking about capitalism. But they break with Marx because they think they, you need new concepts now in order to understand what capitalism is doing. Um, Lyotard, Jean-François Lyotard, did a review of Antiochus when it came out. And I think it's one of the best reviews because that was exactly his point. He says, these guys say they're Marxist, and yet he just goes through and says, and yet here are all these things, all these categories and concepts of Marx that they just either critique, or he says, more than not, they don't even critique it. They just ignore it these things and let them slide and introduce their own concepts. And I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good list of what they, what they take and what they let drop from, from Marx's analysis. I'm very glad to have heard that. Cause that's been, that's going to, that's been a splinter in my mind for about a year. Cause they don't, they don't even add a qualifier. It's just, we always were, and we shall continue to be Marxists. But okay, there there is an asterisk there, though. You know, one addendum to that, I was in China, well, a few years ago now, and most philosophy departments in China are in, not many at least, are in the you know School of Marxist Studies in any given university, um, because it's China. But I was talking with a you know, couple of scholars who remain unnamed who said, actually, in China, it's very difficult to talk about Marx, which is, which is somewhat surprising. But of course, because there's a kind of Marxist ideology, you know, what we call the party line. And Marx himself is a rather radical, subversive figure. And so even in China, talking about Marx is a difficult thing to do, they were saying, uh, because there's you know, a certain way of talking about Marx that's acceptable. And if you, you talk about, you know, bring up other aspects of Marx, uh, you, you can get in uh, serious trouble, which is simply to say, there's the fecundity of Marx. I think that has not disappeared. It's unfortunate Marx, Marxism, you know, we're in a post-Marxist age, people say, but uh, he's so overladen <laughs> with everything that people yeah. think about Marx, that actually going back to Marxist texts um, happens less often than it should. So that's just a plea for people to go back and, and read Marx himself. So you, you mentioned uh, talking to colleagues in China. This is almost just a, a filler question before we talk about the seminars project. But what what's about Dilla's studies these days? What news? Is it everybody madly creating concepts? Is there drama? Uh, we had Ian Buchanan on here like two years ago, and he got a little spicy with his take that anyone who does new materialism with Deleuze is uh, completely missing the point. You can go back and, and review that episode, but what's what's the uh, landscape for, for the people like me who are out of the game or have never been in the game in the academic side of this. You know, I don't want to, uh, you know, wash my hands of this, but I have to say, I, I'm, I'm not sure I know entirely. I know there's new materialism. There's, of course, object-oriented philosophy and speculative realism with, you know, Graham Harmon and um, uh, there's accelerationism with Nick Land. There are a lot of, if you like, post-Deleuzian uh, developments in, in continental philosophy. All of which are sort of related to Deleuze, but also related to Derrida, Foucault, you know, everyone in that uh, classic generation. Um, 
I'll, I'll have this confession. Like when I was working on Deleuze early on, I, I, I didn't understand everything. And I, I was always looking for like secondary works that would explain it all to me. And there were few, if any, and there are some amazing Deleuze scholars out there, but I still find uh, there's a huge bibliography, but among that bibliography, the people are actually taking the time to work through Deleuze carefully uh, and explicate his work so that other people can understand, I still find rather small. And so that's my particular complaint. And I think Deleuze himself leads to this because he says the act of philosophy is creating concepts. And so I think a lot of people rightly take him seriously and uh, and say, well, you know, we're not going to do the old school thing, which is to do close readings of Deleuze, because Deleuze himself teaches us, even by his own monographs, yeah, you're kind of reading Spinoza and Nietzsche, but you do so, you're doing so in order to create your own concepts. Um, and so I th think people tend to do that with Deleuze. They don't read him carefully because they think the most important thing is to create their own own concepts and and, and and produce their own schizo flow, as, as Guattari might say. Um, but the fact is, Deleuze did the work. You know, I mean, he, he was exceptional. It's hard to, for anyone to compare themselves with Deleuze because he was a bit of a you know, prodigy, even philosophically. I read once parenthetically in an early interview where he said, for him, reading philosophy was like reading a novel. And you could, the concepts for him were almost like characters. And he would follow the, the, the unfolding of a philosophical work almost as if he was reading a novel and there was these concepts and they would interact with each other and there was a story there. And I believe him that he just had that easy facility to kind of, you know, when you read a novel, you imagine the characters and imagine the landscape. And I think Deleuze did that with concepts. You can imagine the concepts, how they related to each other, what landscape they were uh, producing. Not many of us can read philosophy that way. Maybe other people can, but I, I certainly can. But I do. My my complaint is, I, I I think there should be more work where people go back and do what I, I think they uh, believe Deleuze told us not to do, which is do the careful work of reading Deleuze and, and reading his philosophy and getting clear on what he actually is saying. Because one of the difficulties that I found, so going back to something you said early on, how I structured my book, Deleuze at one point says he believes in philosophy as a system. And so I thought, well, great, I'll just try to lay out what Deleuze's system is. And the uh, second part of my book is called Deleuze's Philosophical System. And I, I was trying to use rubrics from Kant's system of philosophy uh, in order to see how you know, Deleuze changed those rubrics. Within those rubrics, he does something completely different than Kant, but nonetheless use those rubrics to see what his system is. So I used aesthetics, dialectics, analytics, ethics, politics, all the icks in philosophy. Um, and then I got frustrated because I realized I can't, I, I just stopped working. I can't pull together Deleuze's system and just present it. And it took me a long time to realize why. Um, and it's simply, I mean, it should have been obvious that Deleuze says philosophy is the creation of concepts, but what it means is that Deleuze's concepts are changing even within his own work. You know, they do not remain oh, yeah. the same. And so there's no system I can present <laughs> because, and he himself says this, every book he did was a new project. Um, he wrote uh, Difference in Repetition, and he has a notion of intensity there that he says is related to the concept of depth. But then he wrote Logic of Sense and retains the notion of intensity, but now it's related to the notion of surface. And then he wrote Anti-Oedipus, and he says, I still have the notion of intensity, but now it's not related to either depth or surface, but it's what takes place on a body without organs. And then 
At the end of his career, he writes what is philosophy and intensity reappears, but now it's a word he uses to describe the components of concepts. They're intensive and not extensive. So that's just one example, even within Deleuze's own work, and this is himself pointing to the becoming of concepts, they change all the time. So that's what he means by saying philosophy is a system. It's a, it's a heterogenetic system. In other words, it's constantly generating the heterogeneous. So I finally realized that, yes, it's a system, but it's not a system you can ever like lay out and say, here's the final form, because, of course, there is no final form. And that's why I think people want to take up Deleuze's own concepts and create their own concepts, because in a way, that's that's they're extending what Deleuze uh, himself did. But, um, yeah, that was an early frustration. I, I had this idea I could present the system, but I, I had a, a false idea of what that system might be or how you could present it. Well, it's a system, but not a systematic system. Well, as Deleuze says, it's a new concept of what a system yeah. is. You know? But this, I wanted to point this out because if you are, are, are out there and you've tried to pick up a Deleuze book a few times and put it down, and or if you pick up even books that he wrote like consecutively, you can't map the same body without organs between two books. Uh, the definition of the virtual changes at least three times between uh, a thousand plateaus and the cinema books. And then it has a completely different or not completely different, but seemingly different definition when he gets to Leibniz in the nineties. So if you're frustrated by it, I think even Deleuze and Guattari said, we don't even know what each other means when we say body without organs. So, Yes, I remember reading that, and I thought, dang you guys, because if you guys can't even figure it out, what are the rest of us supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, so um, we are here, listener, if you've been interested so far, I'm here to reintroduce you to a resource that you have to check out, because it's been um, two years since your buddy, Charles Stival was on the podcast. Uh, He gave us a bit of a summary of what is called the Deleuze Seminars, or no, Seminars or Seminar? The Deleuze Seminars, plural. The Deleuze Seminars Project. It is a website. And as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, it is, you could spend a thousand, this project is huge. You could spend a thousand hours on here, and I've spent 10 hours on here. There are PDFs, there is plain text, there are videos, and all of it is one spot. All of it is Deleuze and Guattari. Um, spans 20 years. It starts when Deleuze, I don't even think he was graduated yet. You have something from the, like, uh, the late 50s on there, I think, too. We have some very early stuff, yes. Anyway, instead of me introducing it, I will let you introduce it. Could you tell us what the project is? and why us uh, Anglophones should be excited about it, and uh, how far are we into it? Because I, as I said, there's already a thousand hours of, of reading on there, and how much further do you have to go? Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate you bringing this up because, yeah, it's a very exciting project uh, for me. Um, so in a way, the project is Deleuze's knock-loss, as they say. It's his, you know, the, the stuff he didn't publish. You know, Nietzsche took, uh, wrote stuff in notebooks and slowly but surely those notebooks be, were published and you could see sort of Nietzsche's thought in process. And Heidegger, for instance, gave courses and he wrote out all his courses and other volumes and volumes that have been published of, of Heidegger stuff. 
Uh, Deleuze didn't do that. He didn't keep notebooks. Uh, he didn't um, write out his lectures. Uh, he gave uh, a weekly seminar at the University of Paris, first at the Vincennes campus and then at Saint-Denis. And apparently, from what I've heard, he would at best come with a little sheet of paper with a few notes of kind of the, um, what he wanted to talk, talk about that, that day and a kind of conceptual uh, deduction. But that's how I see the importance of this project, the Deleuze Seminars, because that weekly seminar was really his laboratory, his thinking laboratory, where he worked out his ideas that eventually became published uh, in, in book form. And so our, pro um, our project has been to produce English translations of those tr um, uh, seminars. The project began at the University of Paris 8, where Deleuze taught shortly after his death, um, partly because there was one student, interestingly, a Japanese student, uh, Hidenko Suzuki was his name, who from 1979 uh, until 1987 or 85, whenever Deleuze retired, he went to every seminar, sat next to Deleuze and recorded the seminars. <laughs> and it's there were lots of people who were recording the seminars. Uh, we've kind of launched a data rescue to see if we can get tapes that we don't have from Suzuki. Uh, to kind of flesh out the archive. Um, but he gave his tapes to the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library of France. They archived them, turned them into MP3s, and they're now all available uh, through the National Library. There's an archive of Deleuze's recordings. Uh, shortly after his death, a committee was formed, headed by Alain Badiou, believe it or not, to um, uh, transcribe all those recordings, just transcribe them into French and put them on a web website at the University of Paris 8, which is there. And that took, I believe, 15 years uh, to finish all those transcriptions because there are so many of them. And I believe they just got graduate students at the university to help them over the years and do this. I got involved in this project because um, they had not transcribed the Foucault seminars. And I really wanted to read those. And so I offered and uh, got a grant from my own university, hired someone to, uh, and Annabelle Dufourc, who's a really good scholar on her own. But um, back then she transcribed the Foucault uh, lectures because I wanted to <laughs> read them myself. And then we gave them to Parasite and they put them on their, their website. And then they finally finished the transcription. So what we're doing now is simply trying to translate all of those uh, uh, seminars, seminar lectures and make them available in English because obviously more people speak English than French and it makes it available to a much wider audience. Um, the importance of them, here's the story I tell about the importance. Um, there was early on, a, a, and it still exists, a web page called Web Deleuze that had been started by Richard Pinhas, who's a musician, but also was one of Deleuze's students and a friend of the Deleuze family. And he had done some recordings and he put some of them online uh, early on. And one of his, the ones he put up was a, a Leibniz seminar that he called the tavern, <laughs> like the bar, uh, which is a question Leibniz poses at some point about human freedom, saying, how do you decide when you're at home working and writing an article, for instance, or doing philosophy, uh, but you think maybe I'm going to go out and now and take a break and have a drink with my friends. It's just a question of decision theory. What goes on in making a decision? Do I stay at home? Or do I go out and have a drink with my friends? And there are only about two or, th two or three places, Deleuze says, in Leibniz, where he talks about human freedom, because most of the time he's talking about the freedom of God. You know, God thinks possible worlds and all that stuff, and then decides to create this, the best, the best of all possible worlds. So he has about a three-hour 
seminar on this question, just what is a decision for humans? How do we go about making a decision? Which I thought was fantastic. It has to do with micro motivations and the unconscious, uh, differential notion of the unconscious that Leibniz develops that I had seen nowhere else in Deleuze. And I was completely fascinated, but also flabbergasted why this, what I thought a profound analysis appears nowhere in Deleuze's work. So I went and looked at the Leibniz book and sure enough, the, the topic is there, but everything that took place in this three hour lecture, which, you know, in transcription is about 30 single space pages is reduced to three lines in a single paragraph or maybe a single paragraph, maybe five lines. And I myself could never read the Leibniz book and reproduce what goes on in the seminar. Um, but I can see having read the seminar, uh, what went into, you know, that paragraph. So for me personally, as a Deleuze scholar, I began to realize that the seminars he was giving were really, as I say, his laboratory where he was working out a lot of his ideas. And you can see it when you start reading the seminars. For instance, uh, the cinema books that Deleuze published in 1983 and 1985 were the result of a four-year seminar that he is giving a three-hour lecture on every week. And so just for those two, two books alone, and this is what we're in the process of translating and, and finishing now, there's pages and pages and pages of reflections on the nature of time, the nature of movement. Sometimes he'll, he'll say, today I'm just going to do philosophy, and then other uh, sessions he'll say, today we're going to do film. Uh, and there's material there that just just didn't make it into the books. So it's a vast you know, resource. And as I say, the peril, there's parallels between Nietzsche and Heidegger and lots of other people there. They're the background material that kind of show the inner workings of Deleuze's thought that you simply don't get, could never get in the published material. And uh, for me, it's, it's, I think, hugely important. And I think Charlie and I, Charlie Stavall, who has um, uh, now become the co-director of the project, I think we see it as a work uh, for posterity because there's so, as you say, there's so much material there. And I think this will make it available to you know, subsequent scholars who are trying to work on Deleuze and try to think and see how he thought what he was thinking. This, I think, will be an incredible and valuable resource for them. So normally, yeah, you go to a seminar in like grad school or even upper level undergrad, and the seminar takes the form of the course director, professor, kind of summarizing and, and simplifying their own past work. And maybe you'll read one of their chapters and discuss it like this. And this is completely the flip side. This is the opposite of that. If you read the published work, you're going to miss like the other thousand pages that he wrote on exactly the topic. So the, the books are abridged versions of the lectures as opposed to the other way around. At least that was my impression. No, that's true. Yep. And I have to say, it's a very French thing and they're, you know, the flip side is there, I don't want to say problems with that. Uh, it's what uh, Foucault did. His uh, um, lectures at the Collège de France have now been published. And, um, you know, in France, you're when you become a famous professor, you know, you're kind of an oracle. People come and listen to what you have to say because you're developing your books while you're giving these uh, lectures. When I was at, in grad school, uh, another French philosopher, Paul Ricoeur, who was a hermeneutic philosopher, would come to the University of Chicago where I was just for 10 weeks. We were on the quarter system, so each quarter was 10 weeks. So he would come and I would take all his classes, but he was doing the same thing. It made them exciting classes to take 
but he was just developing the books he was working on at the time in the context of the courses he was giving the book. He was doing a book called Time and, and Narrative. That being said, like Recur, I remember hearing him say he wanted to come to the U.S. to try to get away from this oracular <laughs> status, <laughs> yeah. you know, that French professors had. And you can see Deleuze trying to do the same in his own way. When you read the, the transcripts of the seminars he's giving, he's constantly trying to say, I'd like you to ask questions. You know, I'd like you to interact with me. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Um, but I think the in, here again, this going back to what I say about institutional structures in philosophy. I think the structure in France was so set up that you know professors had this kind of elevated status that um, it's it's kind of rare. I don't say it's rare; it happens quite frequently. Uh, but there are a certain number of people who take Deleuze up on that and are frequently asking questions. It's almost always the same people who take that invitation to um, you know to to talk a lot. So look, you dorks. I'm stressing this. You know I don't run ads, and Dan is not paying me to say this. But you have the links in the description, and you need to click on it. So, you gave this uh, the the Leibniz anecdote that this these pages are reduced to lines. If you are a budding Deleuze scholar, and you need a dissertation topic, or you're you you don't think that there's anything left to study, you're wrong. Because if you go through this website, you might be one of the first people to stumble across something there. So all you out there, you know Eric, buddy from the podcast, PillPod. Um, he's studying Charles Sanders' purse, and he got pissed off because Dillas did like a handful of references to C.S. Purse in the cinema books. And that's it. Never elaborated. But Eric went to this site, completely independent of me doing this interview, and found full-ass lectures on purse, which he was extremely excited about. So there be gold in them hills, and you will thank me for it. And I'm thanking you for that plug. And I will say, too, uh, they're, they're much more accessible than Deleuze's books, because he, he, he doesn't write out his lectures. So all of these, he's speaking extemporaneously. And for that reason, they're very accessible. I have to say, it's kind of like Lacan. You know, Lacan's writings are very difficult. Uh, but the seminars are much more accessible. And uh, the same is true of Deleuze. So uh, if, if you wonder where to start in Deleuze, I'm not sure it's a place to start, but it's certainly where you'll find clarity. Uh, they're clearer than Deleuze's books, I would say. So are there are there any things you've found recently, maybe uh, specific paths of concepts, you could say, or maybe just about Deleuze's personality himself that have really changed since... Uh, doing the, the seminars project and seeing how he, he worked through this? Or is he just an, an otherworldly savant that none of us have a hope of, of reaching? That's an interesting question because recently, uh, Charlie and I have talked about this. Um, Deleuze started his seminar books clearly with the idea that he was going to use Bergson, and that's obvious when you read the books, as a, as a kind of, I don't want to say template, but as a kind of using Bergson's philosophy to understand and read through cinema and using cinema to understand uh, Bergson because Bergson was interested in movement and then in time and the two volumes are, you know, the time, the movement image and the time image and that's taken directly from Bergson. By the time you get to the fourth year of the seminar, uh, it's not that Bergson has disappeared, but he, you know, obviously he's a creative thinker and he's moving in a different direction and the direction he seems to be moving at toward is what is philosophy. 
because uh, the last chapters in the time image are about cinema and thought and philosophy. And he's starting to talk about philosophy as the creation of concepts. Um, filmmakers create images. Uh, artists, you know, painters create images using line and color. So he's very much heading toward um, what eventually is going to be published in, in What is Philosophy? And you can, you can see that development there. Um, in What is Philosophy? He talks about what science does as functions, not the creation of concepts, but the creation of functions. But in these cinema lectures, he's not yet using the word function. Uh, he's seeing science as the creation of uh, operations or operators in French. So he's clearly like looking for a language. And eventually when he publishes What is Philosophy, he settles on the idea that science produces functions, but he's not yet there. He's saying science produces operators or operations. So you can see that, that history. And then the puzzle is um, why he doesn't immediately start writing What is Philosophy? And one obvious answer is Foucault dies. And so after he finishes the cinema uh, books, he spends a year doing a seminar on Foucault, partly an homage to his friend, uh, but also, I think, to really come to terms with Foucault's work now that he's dead and there's a body of work uh, to deal with. But there again, instead of going on to what is philosophy, afterward, and this is the mystery to me, he decides to do a year-long seminar on Spinoza. He's already written lots on Spinoza in the past, clearly knows Spinoza well. Uh, but decides for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me. Uh, they're clear when you look at the end of the Foucault book because he starts thinking uh, about Foucault in fairly Leibnizian terms. So he felt like, I don't know what, he needed to go back to Leibniz. Um, and I heard a story um, when I was in France as a student from someone who had been sitting in Deleuze's seminars, but you rarely saw him out and about town, but he was in one of the big bookstores in, in Paris in the left bank. And he heard Deleuze's voice, which he was used to because he went to the seminars. And he looked over and Deleuze was buying uh, books and he had two piles of books. One were primary texts of Leibniz, the other were secondary texts. And essentially he had cleaned out all the, uh, the Leibniz books that this bookstore had to offer. And his interpretation was, Deleuze always said when he did a project, he would start from scratch. For some reason, he decided he wanted to go back to Leibniz, uh, but he wasn't going to do what you said, sort of repeat his previous work. Uh, he wanted to start from scratch, reread Leibniz, uh, you know, from scratch and, and rethink uh, Leibniz. So I'm not sure why he did that. That's one of the puzzles for me, why that Leibniz um, book is in the trajectory of Deleuze, when at the end of the cinema works, he's, he's heading toward what is philosophy. But that's the kind of material, that's why you, your question is a good one. You, you, in reading the seminars, you can you can see Deleuze working things out and heading in a certain direction and yet taking detours or running into blocks and roadblocks where he starts developing a concept. Like early on, he uh, developed a concept of the audiovisual, which was coming from Guattari, I believe. And yet it wound up not getting put in anti-Oedipus. You know, it, it was a concept there, but just for some reason got blocked and, and not developed. All those are things uh, you can see when you read the seminars, if you're attentive, you know, of, of um, I don't want to say like the books are a final word, you know, that everything is set and Deleuze, you know, knows exactly what he thinks there. But in the seminars, things are much more fluid and tentative. And you can see his mind at work in a really, I think, fascinating and revealing way. All right. I got one last drop in question that just came to mind. And it's another one of those I've been wondering a long time. And now I have you here. And then I, and then a final question. So compared to, uh, I mean, Guattari's name is on 
what is philosophy. But compared to uh, Kafka, compared to Thousand Plateaus, and compared to Anti-Oedipus, it's much more difficult, at least for me. I don't see his voice in there. Was there a different co-authorship arrangement, or am I missing it? I don't know definitively the answer to that question, um, but I share your suspicion, and I think a lot of people do, that Deleuze mainly wrote what is philosophy. It has that kind of, well... Flavor. Deleuze style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, not the flamboyance that you would get from Guattari. You know, Guattari's notebooks have been published while they were working on Anti-Oedipus, and uh, there's one point where he's he's kind of resentful toward Deleuze because he says, Deleuze, all he cares about is the project. He's writing and working all the time. And he says, me, I just want to produce like the schizo flow. And it's true when you look at the text that Guattari was feeding to Deleuze that Deleuze would then revise into Anti-Oedipus. They are indeed kind of schizo flows. And, and, uh, and that being said, I'm not even sure, uh, like the idea that philosophy is the creation of concepts, I think that is Deleuze as well. I'm not sure Guattari would have thought of philosophy that way. I'm, I'm sure he thought of himself necessarily as a philosopher, but if he did, he was more interested in uh, writing diagrams, like diagrammatism, which is a concept they develop. I think that's much more how Guattari worked um, rather than producing concepts. So yes, I think What is Philosophy is very much a Deleuze book, but at the same time, I think he was aware that a lot that he was developing in that book came out of his work with with Guattari. And so uh, he didn't want to, you know, claim that it was a Deleuze book. So that's my suspicion. But, uh, you know, Guattari was still alive and they were working together. So I don't really know what the working relationship was at the end there for, for what is philosophy. But I share your, your sense that the text reads much in a much more Deleuzean fashion than a Guattarian fashion. Well, that's another another little sp splinter taken out of my mind. So, at least at least I'm not alone. Um, so, final question is about the Deleuze seminars site. We've hyped it here, and if uh, someone wants to go there, I mean, it's overwhelming. There is a search function, and the search function actually works pretty well. Like if you uh, uh, today, I typed in um, diagram because I was looking up something for something else, and uh, it brought me straight to lectures that all include the word diagram. But how if you if someone's hearing this and they're like, I want to do this, and then they go there and they're like, Holy shit, this is nine hundred pages of uh, of stuff. How what's the best way to negotiate or look around? Should they come to it with a topic in mind if they're already interested in it? But how do you deal with all this without being overwhelmed? You know, that's a very interesting question, and I actually would like to hear from any of your listeners or from you even uh, of suggestions on that score, because you're right. It's a huge, uh, it's a huge amount of material there. And our focus now is oh, so, so if we got some UI designers, leave in the comments and you'll get cited in the project. Yeah, <laughs> you will. And your suggestions. <laughs> and if you find, you know, this is like, even if you find typos or errors, because usually you find an error, you know, you're not really concerned about that because you're interested in the content. But we're concerned about that because we really want this to, uh, you know, be a, a good site. So do not hesitate. There's an email address there for the site to email us and, and let us know. But your question is a good one, uh, and we don't yet have a definitive answer. There is a setup that we're working on uh, 
you know, in each page at the beginning of the seminar, there's ideas referenced and people referenced. And the long-term project is to build a critical editorial apparatus around the seminars so that you could click on, say, a concept like Body Without Organs. The search engine will bring up any uh, seminar in which that is referenced, but then we would like to write short articles that are kind of helping people, you know, go to the right places in the seminars that would be most relevant to their their interests. Um, but we're working on how how to think through that, how to build an editorial apparatus that will allow people to to use the site and you know because. People like me, I've read most of them <laughs> because I'm a Deleuze scholar. Not everyone's a Deleuze scholar that's going to have the time to read through all these seminars. So we want to find a way to allow people to get into whatever topic they're working on, particularly if you're not a philosopher and you're interested in, say, we've just finished the paint, uh, Deleuze's painting seminars, which is the seminars he gave while he was writing the Francis, the, his book on the painter Francis Bacon. You know, So if you're a painter or an artist and you'd like to get more information on uh, how Deleuze thought about painting, we want to think of ways that people can you know, get to the topics they're interested in quickly without getting overwhelmed with the amount of material. So we have some ideas on how to do that, but I would welcome uh, you know, advice, suggestions from users of the site uh, on how, how that might be done and uh, any comments or suggestions that people might have on that score. Yeah, it's kind of rhizomatic because if you, if you go to, I have one open right now. So if you go to a page then on the side, there's a whole bunch of links of every single topic, uh, like a hashtag reference of aesthetics, catastrophe, the sublime. You click on that and it'll bring you to all the other ones that have that referenced. And same thing with people. So there's artists referenced, obviously philosophers referenced. And it, it becomes a good way to kill some time if you are uh, if you are, are just bored on a Saturday. Spend it. Spend it rhizoming through Deleuze's oeuvre. Yeah, and if you click on the names, I've just started trying to, uh, you know, give some short biographies on some people. So we're just, just, just starting down this path. Um, that's a much broader project to, to write that editorial apparatus. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's future work. Um, but it, you're, you're pointing to a problem in, in the sense, not a problem, but uh, the sense that when there's so much material, um, and it's not going to be published. So when Deleuze died, he left uh, one of the stipulations in his will uh, was no posthumous publication. His wife Fanny interpreted that to mean no print publication. She's in a way like old school because she didn't see internet as a publication. <laughs> so she allowed uh, Richard Pinhas to put stuff on Web Deleuze and she allowed Paris Aid to transcribe all these seminars and she gave her blessing to our project to translate these into English um, free of charge. Um, but she was fairly adamant that there would be no print publication. Maybe not bad these days because most people, students certainly these days, are uh, more comfortable going online to find their stuff. But it's it's still easier in a way to find your way around a book You know, if we could publish these in book form. Um, one of the things we're hoping to do in the future is maybe to get... Um, you know, ebooks, uh, kind of PDF books or something like that, where the once an entire seminar is translated and corrected and, and we feel satisfied with its final result, um, to just put it in an ebook. Uh, and uh, so that can be downloaded um, because it takes a bit of work to jump from seminar to seminar. And th this is just mad. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the, uh, 
painting and the question of concepts and then the people reference they're half artists like Francis Bacon. Oh, he's probably writing the Francis Bacon book at this point. It makes sense. But Paul Klee's in there, Rembrandt, Kandinsky, and then Gotha all of a sudden. Well, it's just, this seems like a good way to read Deleuze once it's, uh, and, oh, sorry. Last question. Last question for sure. How far is it from being finished, do you think? Well, translation-wise, we have finished everything except the last two years of the cinema uh, seminar. So uh, we're working on those. That being said, those two years, you know, there's like 25 or 26 three-hour lectures in each of those. So add up the total hours, you know, it's three to 75, probably 150 hours of material. So it's still quite a bit that we have to um, uh uh, to work through. I will make this plea as well to people who might be listening. Um, as I said, the, most of the archive is based on the recordings of the, this Japanese uh, student, Hidenko Suzuki, who recorded most of them. But we know there are a lot of other people uh, recording things prior to 1979 when uh, Suzuki started attending. So if anyone out there knows, of course, they'd be fairly old now, people who attended the seminars, um, especially in France. But if you know people who might have recordings, we really would like to, you know, uh, flesh out the archive from the seminars that occurred before 1979. We found quite a few, but, um, you know, if, if you know of anything, get in contact with, with us before those cassettes start disintegrating or the people who own them start, uh, you know. Kicking it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you've promised a few people jobs. I don't know if you've, if you're aware of this, but you said... <laughs> We need some people to just be Deleuze scholars, only explicating. So there's some jobs for you. You can you can talk to Dan. He'll put in a good word for you at Purdue. Uh, we need UI designers with their ideas, and we need anyone who's got grandparents who are kicking it in Paris in, <laughs> in, in the 70s and 80s. Or no, parents, probably. Yeah, probably could parents. Be, could, yeah. Could, could, could be, be grandparents. Yeah. So yeah, All lots right. of jobs out there, many opportunities. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dan. This was uh, enlightening, exciting, excellent. Uh, everyone who is listening, you got you got to look at this site. And they're asking for help. So I know that you always just love me giving uh, feedback that I didn't ask for. This is feedback that's being asked for. <laughs> so, uh, Dan, do you got any uh, parting words for the, I don't know, 6,000 or so people? that are going to listen to this? Well, I don't know. If you're listening to this, you probably like philosophy, and philosophy is not a, uh, it's not a normal thing to do in this world, but uh, it's one of the best things to do in this world. So I would just uh, tell people to keep at it, keep listening to Pill's podcasts and, and thinking about things and, and, and reading the books because, uh, yeah, we don't talk about much of contemporary politics, but, you know, people say we're in a post-truth age and, you know, people use language and concepts and, not always the best way. So um, keep doing philosophy. That's what I'll say. <laughs> Ayo. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll end it there. Thank you, Pills. Thanks for having me on. I had a lot of fun. Recording stopped. <laughs>